Welcome to the Land Ethic Podcast, dedicated to naturalism, conservation, and stewardship. I'm Dylan Banyasco, a landscape designer and outdoorsman from Central Texas. I'm learning from individuals and organizations that are working to improve our relationship with land. Subjects may range from regenerative agriculture to ethical hunting and wildlife management. Please subscribe on your preferred app and follow Land Ethic Podcast on social media for updates, episode releases, and more. Jess Johnson leads Wyoming Wildlife Federation's efforts on behalf of wildlife and wild places through policy and local advocacy. She grew up ranching in Montana, Northern California, and Wyoming, and has a deep appreciation for wildlife and wild lands. She's a bow hunter, co-founder and advisory board member of the National Wildlife Federation Initiative Artemis Sportswomen, and serves as the policy seat on the board of directors of 2% for Conservation. I reached out to Jess in the hopes of understanding a bit more about some of the recent developments and changes happening in wildlife management at the level of state policy. If you're a hunter or outdoorsman, you're probably hearing about some of this. We talked about the current state of hunting, federal and state protection around wolves and grizzly bears, Jess's once-in-a-lifetime hunt for doll sheep and caribou in Canada's Northwest Territories, and the need for empathy and cooperation in conversations of wildlife management. Jess has a nuanced outlook, I think, as I find with many of my guests who are conservationists working by necessity in a bipartisan way in the best interest of wildlife and natural resources, and that's something I always appreciate. I uh, hope you enjoy this one, folks. I know I did, and have a look at Wyoming Wildlife Federation, Artemis Sportswomen, and 2% for Conservation. If you want to read that story about Jess's doll sheep hunt, Check out Modern Huntsman Volume 4, I believe, the women's edition. If you have ideas for topics or people you'd like to hear on the podcast, please send me a message on Instagram or at landethicpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks. Jess, what's going on? Not too much. Happy to be here. I'm happy to have you here. I'm looking at a uh, big, beautiful mule deer and a big, beautiful elk behind you on the wall. Yeah, uh, two very lucky stories, uh, but also neither one involves me hunting them. Uh, the mule deer is actually a uh, mount that has been in the Wyoming Wildlife Federation's history. One of our like older executive directors at some point shot it. So it's a little bit of a testament to the history of Wyoming. And then the elk behind me was actually a... Uh, a poached elk that we ended up finding. And, um, after working with the game and fish, they let me take the head, um, after reporting it and everything else. That's rare. I feel like they usually don't let you take anything when I hear about those. No, this guy was a mile and a half in and, uh, what would looked like being gut shot by probably a crossbow and found him on second day of archery season. And, uh, He's a seven by seven for those that can't see it. He's not a little elk, but, uh, it, yeah, you know, it pays off to, to report things that you find in the woods and to talk with your game wardens and, and pay attention. And, you know, it's an unfortunate story, but hopefully the more we talk about it and the more that we encourage folks to hold each other to higher standards in the woods, the better things will be. Yeah. That's a bummer. Well, I brought you on uh, for a couple of reasons. First of all, I just wanted to meet you. I've heard about you for a while now. 
uh, our mutual friend Connor Coleman suggested you, and I need to get him back on because I, I feel like I bring his name up every episode. But uh, he he told me about what you do, and your name kind of uh, was circling around for a while and on my list, and and then recently you came to mind because of kind of what's going on right now in legislation and all these hunting initiatives that are kind of causing a big shakeup here in the West. So I want to get your opinion on that, but let's kind of, for the listeners, uh, if you could give your background and what you do with Wyoming Wildlife Federation, that'd be great. Yeah. So what I can tell you is what my official title with Wyoming Wildlife Federation is the government affairs director, which is sort of just a fancy way of saying I'm a lobbyist. Uh, I work down at the state legislature and um, oftentimes with other states on national initiatives um, that sort of touch and are tangential to Wyoming and Wyoming wildlife and hunting and angling politics. Uh, It's a lot of sort of relationship building. It's a lot of work in the off season, building narratives around things that we want to change or things that we don't want to happen. So um, uh, then I moved down to Cheyenne capital of Wyoming for the extent of the legislative session. So this week or this year, it'll be four weeks. And in general session years, it'll be eight weeks and just spend every day in the capital working alongside lawmakers to help provide the best insight towards hunting, angling and wildlife policy. Great. Yeah. And how is that organization funded? So we are funded as a mixture between membership uh, major donors and as well as grants. We kind of take in everything. What I can tell you is that policy is an extremely difficult thing to fundraise around because you can never promise uh, that you're going to win. And oftentimes there's always somebody that's unhappy about it. Um, You can't please everybody, but we try really hard and we try to be a really authentic voice that's based in science and is also taking into account, you know, being the best version of ourselves. Um, And so, yeah, a little bit of a take in funding wherever we can get it. So consider that my humble plea that if you guys like what you're hearing or like what we do, uh, please reach out and donate. We run off of it. I will put up links and everything like that for (laughs) sure. Um, Is it fair to say that oil and gas and ranching communities are kind of some of the other major players um, in terms of lobbying? Yeah, um, you know, it all kind of depends. If you're talking sort of strictly in the conservation sector, you have um, oil and gas play a great part. Uh, Agriculture plays a great part. You kind of have a split, what I would call like the, you have the green conservation groups, which are maybe less tangential to hunters. And then you have the hunting conservation groups, which are sort of the voice of hunters, but still a conservation angle. Um, oftentimes our work overlaps with a lot of them. Um, and then other times we sort of work in our own sort of lane. The other sort of major player would be the outfitters. So, you know, Mm -hmm. Wyoming Outfitters and Guides Association has a great lobbyist and, you know, we may not always agree, but when we can agree and when we can work together, it's pretty powerful. Um, so it's been a really, it's been a lot of learning. You can't just work in your own lane and you can't just get mad at someone for one issue. (laughs) Yeah, that man, that's interesting. How did you get there? Like, uh, what's your <laughs> what's your background? Are you a lifelong oh. Wyomingite? So no, and I can tell you that my background is not the normal one. I think for how people, especially in the policy arena, get there. I am the daughter of ranch managers, so we never owned the places we were on, but we managed them. And um, I sort of was raised with a conservation mindset. 
because my family always told me that if you take care of the land, the land will take care of you. And that means looking at it in the whole like ecosystem of things. Um, my dad and mom would come onto ranches that had been sort of run down or they transferred ownership and the owner was maybe a little new to ranching or um, they were changing from cattle to bison or, you know, we've been on probably 10 different ranches in my background and they would come onto these ranches use their time there to bring it up to as ecologically sound an operation as possible. Sometimes that meant that they were rebuilding seven or eight miles worth of stream bed for trout fisheries. Wow. Sometimes that was working with invasive uh, grasses work to make sure that cheatgrass wasn't taking things. Sometimes that was changing cattle grazing into rotational grazing phases so that we had better grazing practices. Sometimes it was removing cattle altogether because they were in places that were just no longer maybe made sense to have cattle on the landscape, which um, especially around some of the predator conversation is probably a hot topic. But, um, and then finally, I think the last one was uh, a ranch that was changing over from cattle to bison. And that was a whole other learning experience because cows are not bison and bison are not cows and you can't treat them the same. So uh, a lot of learning, but I kind of grew up in this mindset of, you know, conservation and landscape work and, the reality of on the ground and living these lifestyles that I think a lot of the rest of the world look at as sort of a Hollywood tale, um, the rural sort of ranching lifestyle. Yeah. And then going off uh, to school to be a ballerina and a theater major. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, yeah, hard right turn there. <laughs> and, and seeing sort of the urban side of things and falling a lot in love with the sort of cultural aspect of being in urban, urban places and dance and obviously that has done me well as far as talking in public and being able to uh, express myself but came back to Wyoming so I was born in Montana grew up Montana Wyoming and very northern California um, came back to Wyoming when my parents took a job on a ranch in northeast or northwest Wyoming and uh, I picked up a bow and started hunting and it felt like a little bit like coming home in the sense of archery and bow hunting took everything I loved about the ranching and outdoors and the conservation and the wildlife and the like animal aspect and tied it with the discipline and the grace and the sort of flow state that I got when I was dancing. And I ended oh, up sort of with the best of both worlds. Um, and I remember after killing my first mule deer, I had a little bit of an aha moment that said, I've, I've just taken something very sacred off this landscape. And it's okay because like, that's how we were built to survive in this world, but that doesn't mean I can't replace it. And how am I going to give back? What is my, you know, I have this privilege of hunting and existing here. Where's the obligation? And so I started working in conservation work then and saw a niche, somehow figured out how to fund it. And I had a hell of a lot of people supporting me um, and ended up just sort of figuring out the policy side of it and have been in it for s coming on seven years now. Oh man. <laughs> that's a, that's an interesting ride there. I, <laughs> that's funny that you say not, that. Not about, what people think. Yeah. <laughs> that's funny. You say that about the, um, the ballerina experience. I, I don't know anything about dancing, uh, but I have at times felt like in the woods, I'm doing yoga sometimes, almost like putting a stalk on an animal. You're like in weird crouching positions and you're yeah. trying to control your breathing. It is a lot of kind of, I could see that. 
people that are in disciplines that require fine muscle movement. So like rock climbing or ballet or yoga or any of these disciplines that require like really centralized muscle movement, you know, moving a specific part of your body at a specific time to get to a specific objective, I think end up as far better like stalkers <laughs> basically. Um, so be people figure out how to be quiet faster when you know how to do fine muscle movement. Yeah, for sure. The, so your parents were the style of ranch management that they were doing. Was that an exception to the norm when you were growing up or did, or were there other people that you knew that were kind of, um, doing ecological based ranch management? You know, I mean, it, they were an exception to the norm, but they also weren't as like rare as I think most people probably think they were. Okay. Um, you know, my dad was part of the Blackfoot challenge up in Montana at its very inception and, and was working, trying to get other landowners around to sort of join together and see this as landscape level conservation, not just private land boundary lines level conservation. So Could working you explain the, fully the together. I'm sorry. I don't know what that is. So yeah, it's a, it's the Blackfoot Valley is up in, um, up in Montana and, uh, you know, it was basically this, this gathering of, of ranchers that were watching a, a incredibly sacred, beautiful, gorgeous place teetering on the edge of um, being either over, over-resource sourced, whether it was for timber or other things, or over-resource sourced, whether it was recreation or fisheries or other things. And these landowners have this ability to figure out how they're going to holistically come together and look at long-term management for the landscape and that you know how are they going to tackle things that as the world is changing as maybe grizzly bears are coming into the area as you know more and more people are recreating in the backcountry as there's more crowds as there's more invasive work you know it's this idea of like if everybody's working together it's easier rather than everybody working in their own silo and it doesn't mean that everybody's agreeing all the time but it what it is is it's this commitment to um a commitment to seeing this land look the same or better for the generations down the line. And I, I will say that I do think that that is something ranchers are woefully underappreciated for, because most of the time people are ranching for their children. Even if the problem that people are facing now is that those ranches and oftentimes those children don't want to ranch. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's kind of a, you know, I, we often forget the private landowners and our, and our heralding of, um, sort of conservation level history and, and work, but it's, it's been real and they're not all great, but you know, not all public land users are great either. So. Yeah, definitely. No, that's a big focus of mine with this podcast is like, as I kind of started to learn more about the role of private landowners in conservation, I feel that they often are unsung and we focus so much on our public lands, which are phenomenal, but um, yep. a lot of the the real work is not happening on those lands. It's happening with private landowners for sure. Well, yeah. And you start looking further East and, you know, there is no public land to, uh, which is, you know, both a, a bonus and a not good thing. Public land's amazing. You know, I've, I've never hunted anywhere but public land and I feel incredibly lucky mm -hmm. for it, but at least in the West, but, uh, also, you know, the, the longest migrations in the lower 48, you know, the mule deer and the antelope here in Wyoming, are only there because of the generational work of the ranchers in that migration corridor, not because of the public land. In fact, all of the problems that we've been having with it are because of the public land and the multi-use 
uh, mandate that public land has, which is amazing and an incredible gift to like this landscape, but it's also a significant um, barrier sometimes to just being able to conserve something. Definitely. While we're talking about barriers and the, the complexity of land management, I want to get your thoughts on a few things that are going on right now. It seems like there's been a whole bunch of mix-up lately. Tell me if this is normal, but <laughs> we've got a proposed ban on hunting and trapping um, large cats in Colorado. We've got impending reintroduction of wolves into Colorado that was already voted on uh, and has to begin next year. Continued cull of British Columbia wolves, which is uh, taxpayer-funded. Canceled spring bear hunts, shifting policies around grizzly bears, hunter orange, also, you know, trail cameras. There's all sorts of new laws and things that are either being proposed or, or taking place. I know that's a lot. I'm not asking you to go issue by issue, but um, kind of give me your thoughts on where we are right now and, and what's happening there at the legislative level. You know, I, I think it's not that these things don't always pop up. I think there's always been there. I do see what feels like more of a coordinated effort in these next, last couple of years. I think hunting is, is having a reckoning and I think we deserve it. Um, you know, we earned it because we didn't open the doors and we weren't honest about a lot of what hunting is and we weren't vulnerable about it. And we didn't talk about the reality of it until it's, and we are now, you know, like as it's coming and, and, and the silver lining here is that the tides are shifting and the doors are opening a little bit and we're starting to talk more about the reality and that without losing the tradition. And I don't mean we need to wipe the slate clean. Like there is, there's always going to be a place here for people who want to hunt, but it's this idea of like, we have to let up on the rhetoric a little bit and start talking about where we can be better as hunting. And, and it doesn't mean just claiming that hunting is conservation or that hunting is the only management or tool in the management box, because it's not like, you yeah. know, we found that out with the uh, Teton goat hunt there. They can just as easily, frankly, it's more easy and more cost efficient for them to go up in a helicopter for 24 hours and take out the mountain goats rather than send in, you know, 28 teams of hunters, but they had to open it up to hunters because there was such an outcry. But I think, you know, when you're looking at that, you're like, what is our, what is our management here? Because the whole reason that we had that ability in the Grand Teton National Park was that mountain goats are bringing in diseases that are then transferring to a native population of bighorn sheep. And if one of those transfers, we have the ability, like it could be that those bighorn sheep are gone within half a decade. Wow. That's like a mega ticking time bomb. And to lose our cool because we didn't have the ability to go hunt mountain goats seems incredibly selfish. Uh, rather than this time thing of like, maybe we just need to send a helicopter up and, and, and it sounds awful and it's like unpalpable and it doesn't look good on paper that, you know, a helicopter goes up and shoots 104 mountain goats. But the other side of that is that mountain goats are non-native to the Tetons. These bighorn sheep are one of the last genetically pure strains that have been there since the ice age, basically. Oh, yeah. And if we lose them, they're gone, like gone, gone. And so that like, tip over of how do we have the management how do we have hunting and how do we make sure that we achieve these management goals that we all claim hunting is there to benefit um 
we have to be honest about it. Like it, it was good that there was that Teton goat hunt. I went on it. I was, oh, wow. you know, I was part of it. It was an incredible experience. It was incredibly well handled, but I think the reality was also like people walking out going, you know, it, maybe the answer is a little bit of both. And maybe we understand that sometimes we do have to bring the helicopter in to do this because it is like time sensitive and it's a ticking disease time bomb if this like goes off. Um, but that's like that, you know, I think that sentiment of just this outcry of, well, I can't hunt there, how dare you, uh, is a problem rather than being like, you know, hunting is how we get closer to a landscape, how we understand our food systems, how we express the animal side of us that is buried so deep under culture and expectations. And it's also how we can eat healthy and clean if we need meat protein in our life. It's also yeah. how we can realize like how incredible this world is out here and how we can, you know, build a love around it. So we fight for it at the political level. So there's like a lot of these, you know, there's a story of hunting that I think every hunter feels, but has a hard time you know, putting words to and putting language around. And then there's the lazy side of that, that when we feel like we can't put words to it, we rely on old rhetoric that's serving us not very well. And when we rely on that old rhetoric, it then doesn't communicate anything. And the only thing that comes out is I like to kill things, <laughs> um, which is a really hard thing to defend at a pol policy level, especially when you're getting increasingly urban legislatures that have, because that's where the voting populace is, mm -hmm. and it's creating a disconnect between the urban rural mindset and so the rural people aren't feeling heard. The urban people are feeling like the rural people are frankly kind of scary. <laughs> um, and, and I think the rural people feel the same thing about the urban people. Yeah. And then it comes out in votes that aren't what's best for wildlife and aren't what's best for the boots on the ground and aren't what's best for the locals. And, you know, when you're seeing these predator these predator hunts change, you know, the quickest thing hunters can say is like, this is based in science, but like, that's not good enough anymore. It is based in science. We know that management is based in science. Hunting is a tool of science-based management, but it's not the only tool. And we cannot just rely on that. Yeah. So we have to talk about the other sides of it and we have to fix how we talk about it and calling it a trophy hunt. You know, if you're going to hunt something, pack it out. I, I, you know, I'm not, we're not in a world where we can leave a carcass in the field anymore and that's okay. Um, so pack it out. If you don't eat it, find someone that does, or, you know, grind it up and cook it for your dogs. Mm -hmm. Like there is, there's ways to do it, but there's, we, we, it's hard to defend yourselves when we're, um, we have a lot of optics to fix. And I think there's something a little bit disingenuine often about the argument that like, if we don't manage this wildlife, um, you know, no one else will. And this is the only way to control populations. Like you said, it's like, it's one way and it's very effective. It can be. But, um, if that's your only argument, it's going to be tough for you. I think it's okay it's got to some say, holes in it. Yeah, as a I, lobbyist, it has some holes in it. <laughs> right. And there are valid arguments from the other side. So I think it's okay to say, Hey, this is, um, not only based in science, but it's also a, a cultural, you know, it's a lifestyle for a lot of people. And if we really are being genuine, then we would be saying, okay, whatever is in the best interest of this wildlife long term, that's what I want, you know. And if that means we don't get to hunt this year, um, th and that's what the, the, you know, good wildlife science is telling us, then that's what we should be in support of. 
Instead of that, you get people digging their heels in and saying, if we let any breach of our, our privileges, then we open the door to, you know, uh, to all sorts of attack. And, um, and I, I think, yeah. I think the key here in these discussions is empathy. It's, and this is the thing that I think we miss time and time again on both sides. So I've always, I have a deep belief in the fact that good policy, like good on the ground policy that is lasting requires compromise from both sides. And it requires everybody coming to the table and everybody getting something, but no one gets everything. And right now that's like a really mind blowing thing when you look at politics, because it feels like it's a pendulum swing and everybody's feeling left behind because of that. And so let's talk, let's just say, let, let's take like, well, hell, let's just jump in grizzly bear delisting and what that looks like yeah. and, and why, where my discussion and where my beliefs come from on hunting of grizzly bears is based in what I see on the ground and what I see as public sentiment being incredibly vitally key to long lasting policy. Mm. And that means that, you know, I, I want grizzly bears in Wyoming. I want to see them on the ground and I want them there. So my great, 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 great grandchildren can see them too. There are very few people in this state that don't agree with that statement. People want, you know, it's not that they want them extirpated or bears to be gotten rid of. Most folks understand that bears have value on the landscape. The frustration is coming with, because they are still federally listed, even though they have been recovered to the numbers that we have been told to recover them to for now three different times. Um, and that goalpost has moved. So the public on the ground local sentiment is one of frustration. And it's frustration because there are no tools that the, the public has without like grand effort from a lot of agencies to deal with what happens when you just have grizzly bears in your backyard. And that's okay, there's going to be conflict. We're going to have to come up with resolutions to it. But the idea is, is that if we delist this bear, it gives the locals a little bit of a feeling like they have some control. Right now they have none. And at, you know, anybody with no control strikes out and lashes out. It's backed into a corner is the thing that bites you. Yeah. Whereas then even if you have like a little bit of control or a little bit of like somebody has reached down and, and rather than backing you into a corner, sits you down and says, listen, you may not like this, but like, let's talk about it. That has a more powerful response like as far as being long lasting in policy rather than the person that's going to bite you. Cause at some point the pendulum is going to go back the other way. And the person that was originally going to bite you is going to back your ass into a corner and bite you back. And it's, it's one of that thing of like, you have to remove this pendulum swing. So right now, as the science has it, you know, bears have been recovered and they've been recovered since 2007 from the original listing. We have been and relisted these bears for court cases for sometimes very valid reasons. You know, there were things that we could have done better and we're working on it, but it's this idea of like, the, the language says they're recovered. <laughs> Wyoming has put an enormous amount of work into their management plan and an enormous amount of work into the hunting regulations to make sure that everybody gets a little bit of something. There's buffer zones. You can't bait 
grizzly bears. You can't, you know, like you have to report them. You can't just shoot cows or sows with cubs. You can't just, you know, waltz into any place and shoot. Like there is a more level of regulation around what was proposed for the hunt than I've ever seen in a hunt before. Yeah. Even the Grand Teton National Park goat hunt. I heard they have um, like a live quota that like if you shoot one, you need to report it immediately and they update the quota numbers. So there might be a hunter out in the woods who then has to go home because his tag yeah. is now not valid because a bear like, got taken moot point and it's and it's usually with a with female quotas you know most of those areas only had a female quota of one so the thing is is like you know with bears those older boars actually go in and eat the young of the year Mm -hmm. um so the female will be ready to breed again sooner and so actually looking at a more stable population of bears you want to go in and either eliminate the really old big boars or eliminate the younger males because they are the ones that are going out of where this, uh, it's called the DMA, the demographic monitoring area. So where they're technically recovered and protected in, these young males are foraging out and they're going into places that are not, there's not real grizzly bear food for them. There's a lot of garbage and a lot of people food. And it's always there's the young not, males getting everyone in trouble. <laughs> it really is. It's always those college boys. Uh, and it's, you know, there's, there's no social or public sentiment um, for it either. And so when they had to recover these bears, they had to look at not only where could these bears biologically be, you know, where could they be supported by a food system, but where could they sociologically be and where could they politically be? And that's the triad. And you have to have that trifecta. Now that they're kind of coming out of these areas, we're wrestling with public sentiment, which then shows up in politics, which is why it's so scary and why we're seeing all of this pushback to um, large carnivores and large carnivore hunting around the sentiment is that we've just we've been this all or nothing rhetoric and we haven't reached out and been like, there's other reasons for dealing with this. We need, we need the buy-in on both sides to protect this animal. I think to your point, I think the Washington spring bear hunt issue, one of the politicians even acknowledged that and said like, look, the science does say we should keep hunting them, but we're under a lot of pressure here from, from, you know, our, our social structure is, uh, up in arms. Yeah about it and and it's you know it's because we're posting photos of bears with their tongues hanging out and blood coming out of their mouth it's because we are not telling the story about this and of course it's fine to take photos i'm not saying don't take them but what i am saying is if you're going to post something like that you better be explaining like the the effort and the ethic and the respect that has gone along with that and and you have to understand that like you know a photo is worth a thousand words but in the case of hunting, a thousand words isn't near close enough to communicating what it is. To be a, a modern hunter, you've got to be practically a damn attorney to understand the tag systems and everything. You've got <laughs> well, to yeah, be, so uh, you know, you've got to be able to argue your point. You've got to be, um, you've got to be a lot of things. It's it's a tall order for you know a bunch of people who are just trying to go get food that now have to defend this lifestyle from every angle. Yeah. And it, you know, I think it, it comes down to, I mean, the sort of woeful state of the world is this, the fact that we're getting further and further away from the reality of nature. And we're very uncomfortable with death hunting, not only is very intimate with nature, but it's very intimate with the concept of death and killing something to, to feed your family and feed your friends and feed your lifestyle. And I, you know, you have a culture that's already completely adverse to it. And then to, 
um, have all these easy communication things that are tips, which, are, you know, it's the modern day. I look at Instagram and Facebook as the modern day campfire. So like you go out and have this amazing hunt and you have all of these like emotions that happen. You have all your buddies out with you. It's like this great thing. So you want to come back to your campfire and be like, oh, I had the most incredible trip. Let me tell you guys about it. Yeah. And, and then, you know, whether it's through some level of shreds or petroglyphs, you know, we put up like this story of this hunt and we share it with people who understand it. The problem is, is when you do that at a campfire, that's, you know, 52 million people big, um, it doesn't resonate. Cause this is, this is, you know, where it's 5% of the population that, that hunts or is, um, sort of deeply knowledgeable about it. And then it's, you know, 90% that is, or even 80% that's kind of like, maybe not against it, but doesn't know much about it. And if the first thing they see is this photo of somebody standing with a, you know, cute little mountain lion bear hugged in their arms mm -hmm. with blood dripping out of it, you know, you can't be surprised when they're shocked. And the nice thing is, and the, the, the silver lining and, you know, it, this is what, when I'm up against people who are pretty vehemently against hunting, the first words out of my mouth and this is, this is, I wish everybody did this was to take a second and be like, thank you for caring enough about wildlife to have a problem with this. Yeah. Because if we lived in a world where people just didn't give a shit at all, we would be in a much bigger problem place. than we currently are, at least people care. They may show it in a way, or they may enact it in a way that is um, maybe not informed or maybe it is informed and it's okay if they disagree but it's that idea of like the first words you know being to somebody that disagrees with you like like thank you for having the state of mind and the care about something in this world to stand up and take a stand for it we may disagree but i think it's really valuable to have somebody that does that can we sit down and talk more about this i would love to share like my perspective that is so much more valuable than just being like, you know what, screw you, man. Like <laughs> it's, it just, it opens the table up. And if more people did that and it takes a lot of emotional work, it is not easy to disagree with somebody and you won't bring everybody around. And sometimes they're just going to keep yelling at you, but it's better if you take the high road rather than stoop to the level of a knee jerk emotion or anything like that. And that's in politics, that's in hunting communications. That's just an everyday, we'd probably be better people if we thought a little bit before we responded. Probably. And we're all guilty of knee jerks. I've totally, you know, that, that I'm by no means perfect in this situation. <laughs> well, um, yeah, I, I, I totally understand that sentiment. And, you know, to your point about like feeling like you want to share your accomplishments, I've actually been thinking about that. I've been trying not to, I've been trying to go out in the woods or go out on the river and not upload a picture of it because I realized I was doing it every time I went out and I felt like I needed to, to show what I was doing. Oh, look, I got some, you know, I got a rabbit or whatever. It's like, that one was for me. I don't need to, yeah. I don't need to show that. I don't need to defend this. Um, I can go out and enjoy that resource privately and not feel obligated to tell people about it. And that feels There's even better. There's some power. There's some power in putting the phone down and bringing, bringing the experience face to face rather than through a screen. And I'm just as guilty yeah. of it. If I get an elk this year, I'm, I'm posting, but um. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's, there's, and there's the other thing is there's power in the campfire story, which is like, you know, that's how we, that's how we communicate and build community and how we share in each other's stories and lives. You know, um, I, 
that's like a greeting in Wyoming is, Hey, have you gotten your elk yet? You know, mm-hmm. that's, and it's even some people are like, Oh, I don't hunt, but my like wife or my husband or my kid did. And there's always like, it, you know, it's, it's part of it. And the, the rest of that is like asking like, Hey, are you guys doing well enough? You have food on the table. Like you able to get outside and enjoy this great state that we have, you know, it kind of encapsulates all yeah. of that. And so it, the need for it, I would never want to like leave this podcast with people thinking that you shouldn't post or talk about that. It's just more of like, we need to be a little more conscious of how our, how we are perceived because we are the minority as hunters and we don't become stronger by refusing to step up to the plate and be better communicators. Yeah. Um, that brings me to something that, that you were a part of. I was really interested in talking with the folks at Modern Huntsman for this exact reason, um, cause they were focused on bridging that gap and I think fairly successfully. And when I was doing research for this interview, I looked back, I saw that you were a guest editor in the women's edition of Modern Huntsman. And I was like, Oh my gosh, I read that. I don't remember. <laughs> and I went back and I read your story about, um, your hunt in the Northern, the Northwest territories. And I realized I had read that like years ago when it came out and, um, didn't, put didn't connect the dots that that was you uh let's talk yeah. about that hunt a little bit that was incredible oh it was yeah I was trip of a lifetime and um you know I Caitlin Sheehan who uh will still stand out as one of the great stars of my life it's just like meeting somebody that so viscerally changes who you are and brings joy is pretty like she will be one of them for me forever I met her uh, at a shift conference in Jackson hole. And, uh, I, she had heard me tell a story about losing an elk that I shot and I had shot him at like 10 yards and he had, uh, sort of gone off. And I thought I was just going to sort of walk around a corner and find him. Cause it was, I, I like, I knew I had a good at placed arrow. It was like 12 yards. It was like kind of hard to like not place it. Right. Yeah. And I ended up not finding him for five days and had told a story about losing this elk, told it to a room full of about 300 non-hunters, um, telling the story of like, you know, hunting doesn't always turn out like you think it is. And sometimes it is awful and horrendous and emotional. And every hunter experiences this. Here's things that we can do to like combat that. That happened to me with my first whitetail on the ground with a bow, 18 yards. And I thought she was dead. I went and must have bumped her and found the carcass two weeks later it was horrible and 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 the thing is is most people do like that happens and most people like you and like me like follow up on it and find it and keep looking and keep trying to find out what happened and then trying to be better so it doesn't happen again it's an awful awful feeling but we don't talk about those losses because it's an awful feeling we don't want to relive but the, the truth is is those losses those sort of mistakes and everything are a a open door for communicating about like the realities of hunting and to talk about the soul of hunting, which are people that go out and make a mistake and then try everything in their power to make sure that mistake never happens again. And so there's some power in that, but so Caitlin, this is instant, I guess, power karma. (laughs) Caitlin heard this uh, podcast I did on it, uh, came up to me. We connected right away on, on like, the the woman's voice in hunting and how there's power power and vulnerability and power and emotion um, around the hunting community that the hunting was just sort of stepping into at that point. And she tells me the story about 
she went to sheep show and her boyfriend at the time was an outfitter and she put in for the less than one tag. And she, Caitlin, who is, I think at that time, either not a hunter or had just started hunting, drew a doll sheep hunt in the Northwest territories, uh, with, for two people and, and a caribou tag on the side. And, uh, you know, she was telling me about this and I was like, Oh my God, that's so crazy. What an amazing story. How cool is that to have like somebody that hadn't really stepped into hunting to just go and experience this. And Caitlin's one of those people that just like sees the outdoors and sees, I mean, her, her eyes turn into hearts. Like she just loves being out there and she's this incredible, mentor in the outdoors for, for folks of all walks of life. So she's like very adept. It's not like she's, she might be new to hunting, but she could kick my ass in the back country. Um, and she, we started talking and I was like, Hey, if you need any pointers, or I would love to go hunting with you. Um, why don't you come down to Wyoming on this last week of archery or last week of rifle deer season? Um, and I'd love to go out and take you out hunting and just like, if, if I can help, if I can get you gear, whatever it is, like, let's do it. And she came out, um, on that hunt and I was out with, uh, two other friends, uh, one of which was a photographer and we were out on this hunt and I turned around and Caitlin was down on one knee with a bullet in her hand. I was very confused. <laughs> and she said, I have a second position on this hunt. I don't know you very well, but you've made a really <laughs> profound impact. Will you go with me? Cause I want somebody who understands how incredible this opportunity is. And it feels like it's you. Uh, we have photos of this, which are just like the <laughs> half of them are me with my head between my legs because I think I almost fainted. <laughs> I was like, the problem is, is now like, if I ever get proposed to, I'm not sure it'll ever be as exciting as that one was. Yeah. Um, wow. But <laughs> So I agreed, you know, agreed to go. And then it came, came to be, so, uh, Caitlin spends a lot of time up in Alaska. She's guided in Alaska a lot. She's not, not new to any of that country. Um, like what the Northwest territories and the McKinsey mountains are. And she had an opportunity to come up for work, um, where she was guiding, you know, taking a, taking a trip out during that same time that the hunt was. And this kind of person Caitlin was, she's like, I live in Alaska. I can get an over-the-counter sheep tag basically anytime I want. Yeah. Um, I'm going to give this tag to you, Jess, and I want you to find somebody else to go uh, up to the Northwest Territories. And my only ask is that it is a woman that you think is powerful and that you look up to and that it is somebody that we can uh, sort of talk about this narrative of women in the outdoors around and obviously Bridget Noonan is who ended up going with me. She's now the general manager for first light. Um, and she, you know, it was, uh, was it two weeks in the Northwest territories? It was a doll sheep and a caribou. Um, Bridget, I, uh, Bridget had the sheep tag. I had the caribou tag and, uh, it was just incredible. And, you know, we had, we saw bears, we saw wolf puppies, we saw, you know, we were in a place where animals had never seen people before. And I just think that there's something so humbling and powerful about that. Cause you know, when you're in the lower 48, you know, you're dealing with an elk or a mule deer that's really savvy to humans. Like they, they know to be afraid. There is like, there's something powerful about a caribou that looks at you. Like, what are you? Like, I've never <laughs> seen that before. Yeah. You described some, uh, some encounters where you're able to stalk in pretty close on a few caribou. Yeah. And it was just, you know, 
we had this phenomenal guide. We went with Gaina River Outfitters. Um, Harold Grindy is just an absolute legend in the sheep hunting world. Um, and, and couldn't have asked for a better guide. Couldn't have asked for a better experience. Um, and yeah. couldn't have asked for the fact of like going out with somebody like Bridget, who, you know, the two of us can crush it in the backcountry pretty to the point of where I think our guide turned around at one point. He's like, I don't think I would have taken any other clients up this mountain. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh man. Two weeks um, in that terrain. Was, Unreal. It was incredible. And yeah, now I'm just trying to figure out how many kidneys I have to sell to go back. <laughs> <laughs> well, you guys made some, I think some really good decisions was what stood out to me in that story. Um, first of all, he, your guide was really focused on finding a, an extremely mature uh, sheep and to the point where you guys passed up plenty of legal rams. Uh, in so I order think to 16 legal rams to get wow. to the sheep we ended up getting to. I don't yeah. think I would have had that uh, <laughs> self-control. You know, it was, I, I think the story is, and this, this always goes back to it is, you know, obviously the goal is to come home with the sheep. Um, but once you get up into that country, it's just every minute in that country is a gift. It's incredible. And, you know, we weren't in a rush to end this hunt. And um, we felt like we were physically fit enough to keep going. Um, even though I think on like day five, both of us looked at each other like, this is not, I like, I knew I was fit, but holy crap, this is like a whole other level of grit. Um, and, and then like this idea of, of why, well, you know, why wait for the older one? And, and as Harold would describe to us, he's like, you know, like we prefer, you know, legality is three quarter curl or better. Harold asks like, kind of like eight year olds are like kind of legal or kind of like something where Harold was like, yeah, you know, if it's like last day, I guess you can shoot an eight year old. Um, but we were looking for that 10 years and up. And you can and age them based on the brooming. Uh, yeah. Right, the the brooming. Their the annuli on their horns. So it's like, when you look at a sheep's horns from the outside, it's almost like tree rings and it's growth lines and you can count how old, or, you know, we can learn how to count how old the guides were really good. I'm, I'm sort of good. Um, and then you can look at how far they're broomed. Brooming means when they, so you have the full curl that comes off a doll sheep or a bighorn sheep's, um, horn. And as that full curl comes around, some thoughts are is that like they can be sight obstructing. Other thoughts are it's just unwieldy and sometimes they get broken off. Brooming is when that sharp point at the end of the horn gets broken off and sort of worked back to year two or three on the annuli line. So you can look at a sheep that has a horn that comes all the way around and looks like it's almost ready to like bisect the eye. If it's been broomed at that point, you're pretty confident that that's like an eight to 10 year old sheep or okay. older, especially in the doll side of stuff. And so we were looking and, and we found a lot of them. Um, you know, the other thing is we found them doesn't mean we could have gotten on all 16 of them. <laughs> sure. We saw them. <laughs> um, and then Bridget ended up taking a really beautiful 12 year old Ram, but it, you know, it, it was, there's power and waiting and working and, and being willing to just be an experience where you're at. And I think it's easier. I'm going to make a statement. It's maybe a little gender bias, but I think it's easier uh, for women because we do not have a cultural stigma saying that we have to come home with a a monster to be valuable in this space. Hmm. Um, it's easier, I think, for women to wait a little bit like that. That being said, there's plenty of men that do. It's just that we don't really, I think, have this cultural expectation of always having the trophy on our back, you know, and 
um, we were able to just go and enjoy it. And we ended up walking with the trophy. (laughs) Well, a couple of the other things that stood out, I mean, you, you encountered plenty of grizzlies, uh, including one that kind of was circling around y'all's gear and it stuck out to me that no one went to use lethal force. Uh, they let that grizzly walk when you guys encountered wolf pups, both of you had a wolf tag as part of that, and you had no interest in shooting. I would have made the same decision there, but I'm I'm curious to hear why neither of you were interested in killing a wolf. Um, you know, Bridget and I had a long, long discussion about this, and I think, you know, what it came down to is, you know, what we were there for, um, and that was for sheep and caribou. Um, had we maybe tagged out on both and still like had hunt left, we might've considered a wolf. Um, but a lot of it came down to the point of like, what we saw was wolf pups and I've absolutely no desire in shooting a wolf pup. Um, I am curious. I've never, I've never killed a wolf. I've never killed a coyote, never shot, um, never shot a large carnivore yet. And that doesn't mean I'm against it. It's just that like, I haven't been in a situation where I felt like I could hunt it in a way that would feel fair chase from my perspective. And that, you know, it feels different for everybody, but for me, it, I would love to see, like call a wolf in. I would love, I, I, I wouldn't want to just stumble on one and surprise it and shoot mm-hmm. it. It would, it, I would want to learn about them and which, you know, where in the pack are they? Cause you want to keep the older pack members around because they teach the younger ones to be fearful of humans or to stay away from the agriculture or things like that. The older ones teach, but the younger ones are kind of, if you're going to hunt a wolf hunting a younger, and I'm not saying puppy, but like an adolescent or, or maybe one of the lower stature in a pack wolves is more valuable in the long run because it educates the pack to be fearful of humans, which is always beneficial for wildlife. And, and you're not taking out a critical part of the social structure. So we talked about like wanting to understand this pack that we were in before we were going to go hunt one and be able to figure out which wolf is which and why, you know, it's the same reason why you would wait to shoot a herd bull rather than the raghorn. Um, and, and it's this idea of gaining more knowledge about the landscape around you through hunting of an animal. The other side of it, and, and, you know, we talked about is like, if we kill something, I would love to try wolf meat. And I know a lot of people are shuddering right now, (laughs) but, um, I'm, I'm of the thing of like, if you're going to shoot it, try and eat it. And if it's horrible, find some use for it. Um, and then sort of the last little bit of like, it just, you know, the story that we wanted to tell and what we wanted to talk about is, is sort of this idea around hunting and that it is not just old white guys that go out and hammer the mountains anymore. And had we shot a wolf and, you know, this, there's a film around this. So we had a camera with us this whole time. Um, it would have changed the story and not necessarily in a bad way, but in a way that detracted from the message of why we were originally going on this and why we wanted to be out there. Cause you know, it's the powerful message to shoot a carnivore and it's not that it's wrong. It's just that it has a ability to hijack any other message that goes along with it. I would need a much stronger reason to kill a carnivore or a predator than I would to kill, um, you know, a different, a prey animal. Like I can justify that and be like, I'm hungry. I, you know, I want some meat in my freezer when it comes to, to coyotes or, or other, you know, wolves, bears, whatever it is. Um, I would need to know that 
the population was at a dangerously high level, that this particular individual was um, predating on on livestock, things like that. I, I just I think I would need more than the desire to to go hunt one or for to have the desire to go hunt one. I think I was there like exactly in your position for most of my hunting like career, but um, I I'm blessed to have a partner that's gotten a bear a couple of years in a row. And they've been really amazing, like fat, good bears, spot. Uh, no, 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 a uh, black bear. Oh, yeah, I'm um, not a black bear. Yeah, a little different. Yeah. 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 And so this idea, man, I can tell you, there is no substitute like bear fat in pastries and cooking. And uh, we always have, we'll, wow. we'll do like bear bear sausage quiche with like uh, bear fat pie crust. And it's just absolutely to die for. So the food element of black bears and lions is really major for me. I got so close um, on a couple of black bear this year. Oh, yeah. <sighs> Couldn't close there. And that's the thing is like, they're, they are, you, you have to, you have to know how to cook them and you have to know how to handle them safely because obviously you have trichinosis, but so does pork most of the time, not, not commercial grade, but, um, you know, and then you look at a grizzly bear and, you know, it's the same thing though, as you would, uh, sp- thinking of like the pronghorn. So many people think antelope meat is not good and it's because they don't handle carcasses well. And there are sometimes just animals that for some reason or another are a little gamey. Um, that's not very often. I think most of the time it's how people handle it that makes it not good. That being said with things like grizzly bear, it is pretty dependent on what that bear is eating. If that bear is eating like rotten salmon on the side of a bank, maybe don't shoot it. It's not going to taste great. But if he's like gorging himself on blueberries on some hillside in Alaska, the chances are that bear is going to taste fine. And so that's the other side of like getting to know what you're hunting, um, and, and, and getting intimate with it. Like, what is it eating? Where is it at? Like, do you want to hunt it for food or you just want to hunt it for another reason? And, and just being really honest and upfront about that, I think is, um, sort of where we are getting better at, but are not quite there yet. One last interesting thing that stuck out from that hunt story. You say that the outfitter controls the tags for that entire Valley, essentially, like they have the permit to that unit and they decide what the quota is. That's yeah, so different. Yeah. It's a very different system, I think. Um, but, but, you know, it's, it's something that I look at Harold Grindy and, and, you know, the, the folks up there that are managing a lot of it. And, you know, I can only speak from my experience with Harold, but th- that man cares more about those sheep than I would say the lion's share of sheep hunters. I've never seen somebody who gives as much, who donates as much money, who, uh, you know, he just, he was a living, breathing, walking encyclopedia of that area. I'd be like asking about what was this berry that I saw? Is this edible? Why is this here? How come, you know, this is this, I was just like, it was probably fairly annoying in the level of questions I asked him, but he, at the end of the hunt sat down and brought out like an edible plants book. And we just like ran through everything I was asking. And he just knew it off the top of his head. So it's like, here was a human who understood this landscape. And I feel very, very comfortable that the future of sheep looks good in the hands of people like Harold Grindy. That being said, obviously it is a situation that can be abused and I think could probably be not used correctly. Um, but at least from what we saw, um, what he, where, in, in the area that he was in, it was handled very well. 
Um, and there's, that doesn't mean there's not other political issues with that, like how First Nations and a lot of the indigenous tribes interact um, with how wildlife management is done. But, yeah. you know, what we saw was well done and uh, th- from a management perspective. Yeah. What better ally than someone who is uh, ally for the wildlife? I mean, than someone who is completely incentivized to care for their future. Uh, yep. It kind of makes yep. sense. It's a little un-American, but it makes sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it's one of those, I think, that is like anybody that works in conservation in the sort of states goes like, ooh, that sounds interesting. But, you know, I recently spent some time in Scotland as well, which has a very different <laughs> management situation and conservation situation than the North American model. And, um, you know, it works over there too. It's not that they don't have their problems, but it, it's not that it doesn't work. <laughs> Were you hanging out with Byron Pace by chance over there? Uh, you know, I was a little bit. I went over there uh, for, we actually went to Hungary to do a, a international conservation conference. Um, and then I uh, ditched Byron uh, for, he, he introduced me to Dr. Lindsay Sievert, who he did a podcast with about red deer management. Okay. Um, and Lindsay and I became very close and uh, basically left Hungary, went to Scotland and went red deer hunting without Byron. Oh, no, no. <laughs> So, um, you know, through Byron, you know, great friends and, and great experiences, but Lindsay, uh, does a lot of work in, in, you know, the Scottish deer working groups and deer management groups, which is just profound, uh, work for conflict resolution around animal, urban and rural mindset. And, uh, so, but, but looking at all this work and, you know, experiencing what Canada does for management experiencing what like Hungary did for management and what Scotland does for management, and coming back, you know, trying to implement it in the work that I do here, like there's, there's similarities across the board in management problems. You know, there's never enough sheep on the ground, you know, for all the hunters that want to hunt them. So how do we fix that? How do we bring more? How do we, you know, build on this narrative? And, and I think that's where the hope of like bringing other voices into hunting is also bringing other voices into conservation. And that's maybe where we miss something. So when we're talking like R3, like recruitment, retention and reactivation, my, my, it is my strong belief that we're missing a fourth, a fourth thing. And that is the obligation. That's the like, okay, you're here and you're staying here, but the only way that you get to stay here is if you stand up and and take care of it and you give back, whether that's through on the ground habitat work, whether it's through donating dollars, whether it's through work at a legislative level, like whatever you can do, even if you can only give $2, it's something and it's required of all of us to give back. Yeah, it kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier, to be a hunter, you kind of have to be involved in all this stuff and, um, and, and take a little bit of action, even if it's just being a member of a couple of organizations donating your little membership fee that helps folks like you do your work and keep us uh, represented or whatever it is. Um, I think it's no longer, we're no longer in the age where you can go out in the woods and uh, with, with no strings attached and enjoy the resource. It's just not part of being, you know, in the modern age. But it's also, I mean, it's not part of being, the thing is, is that we, we can conceptualize what our give back is, but that's just the natural order of things to every bit of life, you know, to every bit of give there's take, it's a natural balance of things. So, you know, when, when an animal, when wolves kill an elk and are eating an elk, sometimes they're killing the like lesser healthy or the older of the species. Sometimes they're, you know, whatever it is, there's, they're taking something out of 
And as that elk is decomposing, it's feeding ravens, it's feeding fox, it's feeding coyotes, it's feeding more than just the wolf. And then it's going back into the ground or you can look into it in like the salmon runs um, and how the salmon would come up. And a lot of the forestry in the Northwest, uh, sort of Northwest Pacific Northwest area benefited in the past from the decomposing carcasses of salmon. And this idea that like, to our life, there is, you know, we give back in certain ways, but like this conservation idea is the fact that we can, we as humans can conceptualize it. We can give back, we can be part of the circle, um, but we can think about it in critical ways rather than just existing. And, and because we can think about how we can give back, we're also unfortunately gifted with how much we can take and we can conceptualize it and take more usually than we are allotted as far as, uh, you know, what the world is based on you know, balance wise. So it's because we have that power of conceptualization that like we understand what it is and that's why we have conservation and not just that's life. Yeah. Well, specifically going back to, to the predators, I want to think a little bit um, about like, all right. So here in Colorado, we're facing the reintroduction efforts. We already have wolves migrating down here recently had a a wolf kill of some livestock and a rancher's dog up in northwest Colorado. And in the next year, um, we will be reintroducing, we're not sure exactly what that's going to look like yet, but reintroducing gray wolves into Colorado. I'm on the side of like, I want them back on the landscape. I want a fully functioning ecosystem with apex predators. Um, I'm not so keen on hunting near in grizzly territory, but, um, I got to get over that, but, uh, <laughs> I want them back. No, but I... Never get over that. That'll keep you alive. Oh Just <laughs> always keep a little bit of that fear. It'll keep you alive. Yeah. Um, but you know, so I'm excited to see what, what all this looks like. I fear that there will continue to be that pendulum of like, they'll get into higher numbers than people are comfortable with. And then we'll decide to kill all of them and, and it'll go on forever. But, um, you know, what do you see as, as the West kind of reconciles with our, or tries to reconcile with our, our relationship with apex predators, what do you see, or what do you hope the future of that looks like throughout our lifetimes? You know, I, I think my position has actually sort of changed over time, which I think is how everybody's position should. doesn't matter which way it changes. It's just, if your position is static, you maybe need to update it because, because <laughs> life changes things. Um, I was, I, to give a little insight, I was actually pretty against the wolf reintroduction. Okay. Um, I think ballot box biology is a really poor way to shove things down rural people's throats. And when you have a place like Colorado where the major voting base is urban um, and they're voting to put an animal into rural people's backyards and that animal is usually in conflict with that rural person's lifestyle it's not a great way to start building relationships to have a lasting piece of policy Mm -hmm. what it does incentivize is the shoot shovel and shut up mentality where it's like well it's not in my backyard i didn't see it um and that in the long run is not great for the animal that you're trying to put there and you know something that i that i thought and I've actually changed my stance on over time is a lot like how Wyoming manage their wolves. Um, the way that we deal with our wolves, we, you know, the Yellowstone reintroduction, Yellowstone's a national park. So not under state mandate for 
wildlife. Uh, so the national park federal decision reintroduced wolves, but that meant that, you know, obviously wolves are going to come outside of Yellowstone because they don't know the boundaries. Mm -hmm. And as they come back and as they're built back, we're going to have to start wrestling with how we deal with them outside of those national parks. And the state proposed a plan that actually puts wolves in two different, the wolf in two different management scenarios. One, and it's totally horribly named, they call it a trophy scenario. And the second one, also equally horribly named, is called the predator scenario. In the trophy area, and this is outside of Yellowstone, so not within the park, outside, once they had reached recovery, once they had relisted this wolf or delisted this wolf, this trophy area, um, which was like a fairly large aspect of, it's actually very similar to where we see grizzly bears now too, but around the national park, not in, around, and for, I think it's like 75 to 150 miles in each direction, um, is the trophy management area. It's where we, we very, very, we biologically can support wolves, tentatively, socially, and politically can support wolves. Um, it's this idea of this is an ecosystem that like, it's okay to have wolves in there will be some ag producers that disagree with that statement, but <laughs> on the whole, outside of that, they call the predator zone. So the rest of Wyoming, and, and here's where the sticking point is. And here's where I originally thought I was pretty uncomfortable with the predator zone because the predator zone means that you can shoot a wolf on site any time of the year, night or day, and it, you can shoot it on site and you don't need a tag for it. It's, mm. it's just like whatever happens yeah. inside the trophy zone you have structured hunting season with quotas for a limited amount that you can take those seasons close when that take is reached. So there's, it's a very, very managed hunt. Um, you have to buy a tag for it. It's like only during specific seasons. So, um, focusing not when you're going to have like a mother with like itty bitty little pups on the ground or things like that. Um, and so there's two different situations in the state. Now, originally I was sort of horrified by the predator zone of like, this seems really unfair. Now, having been on the ground and listened to the politics and the stories, what I'm understanding is the predator zone is the compromise that if we are going to have like carnivores, like wolves on the ground, living in people's backyards with livelihoods like ranching that have absolutely zero margins for loss because it is you don't make a living on ranching you barely scrape by no mm -hmm. one gets rich by it and you know when that is the difference between whether you can send your kid to college or if you can put food on the table that night that's a mega 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 problem and so we have to give the locals some feeling of control and this is that like don't back them into a corner where they have to bite you okay give them the table to sit at and give them a little bit of that control and we still have a stable population of wolves in Wyoming, despite the predator zone. We still have such a great population in Wyoming that somehow wolves made it across all of the predator zone down to Colorado. Yeah. Like it's, you know, they are expanding and these animals are incredible at adapting. And so my problem with what happened with the Colorado wolf reintroduction is it had no control factor for the people whose reality on the ground is going to be looking the wolf in the eye not the people who just want to see it because they like the idea of wild, which is also very valid. It's not, there's nothing wrong with that, but it's the fact that we removed any feeling of control for the people on the ground. And then in doing that, that creates backlash that super focuses on say the wolves that are currently in Colorado who then went and got in trouble because wolves do what wolves do and they will 
eat the dumber critters, which happens to be livestock when it's put up against a smart animal like an elk or a deer. <laughs> and they're going to eat the dumb ones first. We would too. We go to McDonald's way more like often than we go to like a fine steakhouse. Yeah. Like it's, you know, it's just, that's, that's how, that's how they do it. And so we have, and we've hyper-focused this like angst and anger around this carnivore onto one pack of wolves who can't step out of line or there's going to be 900 headlines around it. Mm -hmm. Whereas had we probably not shoved this like reintroduction through with a ballot initiative, had we done a little more quiet work around what's happening in Colorado already, you know, I think there was probably more, it would have gone slower. It probably would have been in 20 years, not next year. I think we would have seen wolves in Colorado in a way that's sustainable. I, it may still work, but the problem is, is what it, this did is it is inciting mega, mega policy pushback. I have a feeling yeah. that if Colorado had not done what it did with this wolf ballot box, we wouldn't see what Montana and Idaho just did in their state legislatures last year. It That's pushback and it's pushback because people aren't like, we're not listening to each other. The rural people aren't understanding that urban is is looking at the wild as a place that's dwindling, that is worth saving and that is sacred, which is absolutely true. But the urban side isn't looking at the rural side. That is, this is my backyard and also it's dwindling and it's really hard to live in. And, you know, it's this idea of like both are right and neither one's hearing each other. And so we have to like have a little more uh, give and take when we're doing wildlife policy, because if neither person is listening, Unfortunately, it's not the people that lose out, it's the wildlife. Well said. Yeah, like you, I've, I change my my opinions on a lot of these things. And, and when I first heard about this reintroduction, I remember thinking uh, I empathized a little bit more with the ranching argument of like, this is not, a, you know, the people who are voting on this are, are not going to have to deal with it. But... Um, the more I think about it and I look at the range maps, the historical range maps of these predators that gray wolves and grizzlies that extended down to Mexico. I mean, all two thirds of the U S was their territory. And so I'm in this mindset where I'm like, we got to figure out a way to try to find ways to, to coexist with these animals. I had um, a coexistence fellow on a few episodes ago who, who works with sheep and wolf coexistence and non non-lethal deterrence I know that those methods aren't ubiquitous, but it's a step in the right direction to be like, all right, let's. It's a good innovate. mindset to just start asking. Yeah. It's creative innovation is what's going to save this. Yeah. So yeah. as usual, um, I'm kind of on the fence about it, which my guests are probably, my uh, listeners are probably tired of hearing. Um, I think on the fence <laughs> is a good place though. That's the thing is like, I always think like policy, if everybody's mad at you, there's two outcomes. You either got it right or you got it grievously, grievously wrong. <laughs> It's not somewhere in the middle. So if everyone's a little bit angry, you're probably doing okay. <laughs> I hope so. Uh, a few questions left. I really, I, I do want to clarify real quick. We mentioned uh, delisting and listing with wolves and grizzlies. Can you expand on that and, and talk about the Endangered Species Act and why it's kind of a little bit uh, of a problem? Yeah, oof, you haven't. You need another podcast for that one. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> Endangered Species Act. So it's a piece of federal legislation that diverts federal resources towards recovering uh, specifically listed threatened populations of wildlife. And it's gone through many iterations in that it's had amendments that's changed it. And I think the 
you know, the fact that the bald eagle used to be on the endangered species list and has now been delisted and is um, doing quite well in this, you know, is, is a win that's major, like this, it does work. But the problem is, is it, it works if it's used correctly. And it's not to say that it's a perfect piece of legislation. Um, and so the history of like the wolf and the bear is sort of tumultuous uh, at best with the Endangered Species Act because the goalpost has kept moving as far as what is recovered and what isn't. And um, it's created where scientifically we delist, we say these animals have been recovered population wise uh, as was asked in the listing curriculum. And then there's court cases that go, so it goes from the hands of managers who are scientists and on the ground to in the hands of the courts who are not necessarily scientists or on the ground. Um, and, and then it turns into how do we interpret the legal part of it, which is what's frustrating because the science language doesn't always jive with the legalese. And so there's some holes in that. And I think there's there's many, many, many good merits to the Endangered Species Act. And we wouldn't have wolves in any of these states if it weren't for that. And we probably wouldn't have grizzly bears either. And so it, that's a win, you know? We have wolves and we have bears in places that probably wouldn't had we not acted 30 or 40 years ago. Uh, that being said, as, as the world is changing and as, as the landscape is changing, you know, sure, it'd be great to see wolves back in historic ranges, but that also means like wolves would be in like the suburbs of Denver. And so you have to think about now, where can these animals be that can still biologically support them while also, so, you know, because you can't just have science without the social science yeah. and, and, you know, so the, the endangered species act is playing this thin line with how do we scientifically recover animals? How do we figure out what recovery is? you know, what is the right amount of animals to say they're, you know, can subsist and, and continue to grow or plateau as a population? Um, and where are the places that they're going to go? And, and the thing is, is like, if there were no, if there weren't as many people as there are now, it'd be a lot easier to balance populations. But what we're, what we're wrestling with is we have to balance population against people population. So we have to do something. We have to manage them. We can't just let them expand out because then you end up with animals that are getting in trouble and that's not good for anyone. And right. so there's this piece of legislation, it's federally listing. So it comes from, you know, DC and it's handled by the US Fish and Wildlife Service. And once that population has quote unquote reached recovery, so been recovered to a number that has been predetermined as sustainable for the population in that specific area, they start the delisting, but that is not a stripping of protections. It just means that the management goes from in the hands of the federal government to the hands of the state. And I would argue that you have a lot more of a powerful voice at the state level. They actually have more protections if they are in the state or the state's hands, not the federal government's hands, because it's a smaller puzzle to deal with. Our protections that this, these animals have when they come off the endangered species list, at least in particular for wolf and bear, I would put Dr. Dan Thompson, who is the large carnivore section supervisor for Wyoming, who is the most amazing human and the most in love with carnivores human I've ever met. He is a powerful scientist. I would put his protections for the animals and his his desire for the longevities of these animals against any federal employee and think that Dan will come out on top and he's the state guy. And so I think 
there's, you know, and it's not to say that the feds don't care. Of course they care. They wouldn't be doing these jobs if they didn't care. But it's the fact that like there's this misnomer that once they come off the endangered species list, they're no longer protected. Yeah. Each state has to put forward a management plan that the federal government and many other entities sign off on before this bear or this wolf ever comes off the list. And that's something that's never told. They're saying that the headlines say stripped of protections. Yeah. And they're not. They're, in fact, there's probably more monitoring and more science goes into an animal that's just been removed than an animal that's been on a list for a while. I'm all for taking power away from the feds, but <laughs> one of the arguments that you often hear is that the the endangered species list can be, you know, death row for animals because once they are so strictly protected, it kind of shackles the people who are trying to manage them. They're not able to do anything with them on the ground, and so we list, you know, grouse or whatever it is, and you watch their, uh, you know, their, your their population kind of decline, and no one can do anything about it, and so. I you know, sage grouse listing is a, is a different, it's not even just because it shackles managers. And here's, here's the ugly truth of it is, is at the industry level, wildlife often loses. And it's not because the industry hates wildlife. It's just because we have a capitalistic structure. Many of the industry give a lot of money and a lot of time towards helping wildlife. But if you list sage grouse, all of the sage grouse core areas are also within oil and gas corridors. If we are going to close down areas for the protection of a bird they better be able to beat out the oil and gas industry at the national level and that's slim to none <laughs> um and so the idea of like everybody working together to keep the sage grouse off the list is in the benefit of the sage grouse um and in the benefit of oil and gas and uh, you know there are problems there we're going to have to take a hard look at our future sage grouse are not doing well still but it's the industry has bent over backwards to make sure that they aren't listed. Mm -hmm. And so it's just a matter of working together um, and not lobbing bombs across the aisle on this one. Like what's going to save that bird is, is people sitting at the table and the, and it's there, you know, the sage grouse implementation team, the SIGIT that Wyoming is um, they've all put together is phenomenal and Wyoming wildlife Federation, my colleague, Joy Bannon sits on it. So, you know, it's, it's work done by people who are on the ground who really want to see it, but who, yeah, it's, it could be a little bit, yeah, it could ruin a lot of animals if the sage grouse goes on the list. Yeah. Well, Jess, I, I really appreciate your, uh, your perspective and your optimism around some of these issues. Uh, I know that we're, we're running a little long here, so I want to ask you about a couple more things that you're involved in and then I'll let you go. Is that all right? Oh yeah. I'm, okay. you know, always happy to talk about policy and controversial topics. <laughs> well, these ones <laughs> kind are kind of my weird, it's, uh, people are like, oh, do you like being a lobbyist? And I'm like, I know it means I'm mentally ill, but yes, <laughs> like, <laughs> I do. Um, you're a member of a couple other organizations, 2% for Conservation, you're on the board yeah. of directors, and then also Artemis Sportswomen, which I know a little bit about. Can you tell me about your involvement with those? Yeah. Uh, first of all, 2% for Conservation. Uh, if you are in conservation, if you donate your time to conservation, if you are a business that gives to conservation, you need to check it out. 2% is basically an organization that is helping connect dollars donated and time in the field to a certification process so people can use their dollars smartly when they're supporting businesses. So it's basically saying I give 1% of my time and 1% of the profit to conservation. And that at the big business level just means like 1% of the time of one employee. Like it's not a mega 
thing. But if you think about if we all pull together, if every small business is giving a couple of dollars, if every person is giving a couple hours on the landscape in whatever they find passionate to do for conservation, imagine the things that we could accomplish together. And 2% is sort of connecting those by having a certification process. There's one for a business and there's actually one for an individual. So even if you as an individual give it, you can go through a certification process. The other side is it's connecting organizations like what I'm part of or what Artemis is or what you know Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation or the Wild Sheep Foundation, what any of these organizations are to those businesses that are interested in the causes that they support and work for. So they're tying the dollars to the work and saying, you know, yeah, Wyoming Wildlife Federation, you should talk over here with First Light because First Light is really excited about migration corridors or whatever, you know, whatever it is that it turns out. And then it bolsters this like connection and everybody's benefiting because the, the money is going to a place that's used well and has been vetted and is like a very um, authenticated conservation organization. And then on the flip side, these businesses are getting certified to say, no, I am putting the time and money in. I care about this place that we call home and I care about the wildlife in our backyard. So it's this sort of back and forth. And um, I usually sit on the board as sort of the policy wonk. Uh, Jared Frazier, their executive director is phenomenal, but um, he'll sometimes call me and be like, ah, somebody's asking me about the reintroduction of wolf in Colorado and I don't have enough brain space to like give them. Can you talk to them? And I'll be like, yeah, sure. I've got it. It's cool. Send it my way. Nice. And then... Artemis, um, complete uh, different organization. Um, it is actually an initiative of the National Wildlife Federation. Oh. But what it is, is a women's hunting and angling coalition. And it's, it's the narrative that um, hunting has been predominantly led and the narrative around hunting has been predominantly led by sort of the white man. Um, and that is okay. And there is space for more voices. And our idea is to bring women into the leadership positions in hunting and conservation work to start diversifying the narrative of how we talk to people and how we talk to hunting, which, which I think feeds into what we were talking about earlier about this need for different types of storytelling. But as we're doing this work, we also have to bring women to the conservation side of it. So saying, you know, it's that fourth thing of the R3 initiative. It's that idea of being like, we hunt, we fish, we care, we communicate, we bring other people in and we give back. And so it's training and networking with women to build a stronger voice amongst all of those narratives. And it's been really profoundly successful. I don't think I had any idea five years ago when we kind of came onto the scene that it was going to grow as much as it did. Um, it's been a little bit like drinking from a fire hose and just being like, oh, this was needed. Um, but it's also been incredibly I, it, it has, you know, I don't have children, but Artemis for me was like watching it from its infant stages and Artemis kind of, it can hold its own in high school right now. And, and it's like can drive and it's looking at college currently. And we're so dang proud that it's about ready to stand on its own two feet and just crush it out there and sure. bring a bunch of inspiration in. And um, so it's, you know, if you want to know more about it, you can find it at artemis.nwf.org. And it, it can take all the support, all the voices, and it's not just for women. It's it's an initiative to empower women. But if you're a father or a brother or a husband, um, like or boyfriend, whatever it is, and you have women that are in your life that are powerful and exciting and passionate and want to want to be heard, send them our way. 
Nice. Yeah, it's really cool. I've seen, uh, I've met one or two members and and seen you guys grow. It's been really neat. Okay, so where can people find you if you wish to be found? That is, and um, plug anything else, any other projects you want people to check out. Uh, I, I always want to be found. Uh, <laughs> no, it's it's. I I would be happy to talk with anybody about anything that I've been chatting about on here, and likely just about anything else hunting related. Um, you can find me at WyomingWildlifeFederation.org. Uh, one of the things that we're really excited about is in, on February 24th this year, so 2022, February 24th, uh, we are holding what we call Camel at the Capitol in Wyoming. And we, if you are in Wyoming and you want to get to know your politicians and you want to understand a little bit more about the policymaking around wildlife conservation, this is for you. This is held in Cheyenne starting at 9 a.m. And it is a citizen lobby training. It is a, a full tour of the Capitol building. It is an introduction to all of the legislators, a face-to-face -face introduction to all of the legislators. And it is a, a basic uh, stepping stone for being more powerful uh, an advocate in this state. And obviously it's February, it's in Cheyenne. It's not always easy to get here on the roads, but we will pay gas. We have hotel rooms. We try and make this as cost effective as possible. Um, so if you wanna come, check that out. You can find it on wyomingwildlifefederation.org, wyomingwildlife.org, excuse me, as far as the, um, the website. And then you can also find me on Instagram. I think I'm just just J-E-S-S-C Johnson underscore. And you can find me there and reach out. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. This is great. I hope we get to meet in person sometime and, um, so <laughs> and talk about this stuff some more. And we'll just talk about Connor behind his back because he's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you, Jess. Um, take care. I look forward to uh, to following along with you guys. And uh, good luck on this upcoming season. I'm sure you're planning some things out. You too. And thank you so much for this time. 